Warning, this episode contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. We, you know, don't talk to strangers, but like, is your neighbor your stranger? I don't know if it's being naive, like, but back then it just didn't seem as scary, you know, now that they have how to catch a predator and realizing how many pedophiles are out there. But it's almost like you're naive to the fact that it really could be anybody and somebody that, you know, is in your neighborhood and we just had no idea. Hey guys, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen. Billy's right next to me on the couch again. It all feels right. It all feels right. But the recording at your apartment last week was really nice. It was. I mean, my apartment is just the best. The new rule is on weekends when we record, we go to Jacqueline's and I really appreciate you guys appeasing me. I work you guys super late hours and they come to me as a, and I, Stay up really late writing outlines, so they come to me <laughs> as a thank you, and I so appreciate it. Listen, I drive an hour and a half across the city <laughs> no, for I this really, damn podcast. Yes, I if you look, it. if you look at the difference between you know g- going from Santa Monica or wherever you live over to. Uh, Hollywood. You might think if you're living in middle middle America, oh Look, wow, it's, it's ten not, miles. It's oh, 10 it's fine. Miles. Yeah, it literally is. It's three days, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, people don't people don't leave their neighborhoods in no, LA. They don't, except for me. No, I've had relationships. I've had here. relationships end because of it. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I'd rather date Jared who lives six hours away than date somebody <laughs> that lives in the valley. <laughs> you're dating me like professionally. Yeah. You, well, you, you guys here. are my professional, professional boyfriend and girlfriend. No, we're a weird, sick. We're like a family now. We are a weird. We sick. miss Jared a lot. Yeah. We do miss Jared. What's up? Jared's um, on tour though. So we're not like a love square. We're like a love <laughs> parallelogram. Yeah. Romp, love rhombus. rhombus. Love rhombus. Rhombus. Well, I like a parallelogram too. Me too. We're a little slanty, a little We're different. A little We're definitely not squares. We're definitely. Oh. Hell, if people knew. If people only knew. Billy, it is July 17th. What day is it today? It's Take Your Poet to Work Day. What is that? And I will say this. You know how a lot of people get voted uh, class clown, uh, most likely to succeed? Mm-hmm. I was class poet. You fu- yeah, with your fucking <laughs> owl poem poet. You would. Yeah. All right, you know what? Yeah, but you've never read my my your poetry. My, my sure poetry is, is is dark and emo. No, uh, from back then it was very. Um, what are the words? Uh, dark and emo. Dire. I think. <laughs> It was, yeah, dark and emo. Yeah, dark and emo, pretty Alexis, much, yeah. what are you texting over there? I'm posting a picture of Billy on my Instagram story. Oh, that's sweet. Oh. Um, guess what I was most likely to... What? At high school. Most likely to be seen at a concert. Really? Mm-hmm. I guess that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, did you... The, one of the things that I learned is your dad was telling us when we were off mic last time is that he took you... When you convince them that you want to go on warp tour mm-hmm. and follow warp tour around when you were 18 yeah and then he took you to cleveland i think it was um was it cleveland cleveland I or chicago, it was, chicago. Oh, maybe it was cleveland yeah. i thought it was kansas city but i guess it was cleveland yeah 
I had just graduated high school. I literally went to my high school graduation and then I started Warped Tour the next day and he flew with me there to make sure that it wasn't like crazy, which it was. Yeah. And the people next to me literally rented out a school bus and it was like a bunch of traveling <laughs> circus people, basically. And he just like, let me go. I what can't a guy. believe he did it. What a guy, Bill Vanek. He was probably shaking in his boots. No, but, but that's the thing with... with- Think daddies. about it is with daddies. It's just like, you know what? You have a kid with conviction. She's mm-hmm. like, I want to do this. I don't want to do anything, any of this other stuff. I want to do this. And you laid out your case and then you believe in your kid. Yeah. And, and, and if it all seems right and now, now look at you. Well, I also was a very good kid. My parents trusted me. So I'm that- not going to weigh in on my own childhood right now. <laughs> But we are talking about high school. I was nominated for best eyes. Ooh. But I lost. Oh. <laughs> How'd you lose? How'd you lose? You do have beautiful eyes. It was very political. Yeah. It was very political. Was it? Oh, yeah. Bummer. You know, the only reason why I think I even won, the only reason why that category even existed is because I was on your book and we made up the category. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was on your book too. And I also, I titled our yearbook every year and I put myself in the yearbook like 50 times. I literally was on your book too for this reason it's yeah. insane because you're creating history so now when people yeah. go look back at your their yearbook they're gonna be like wow jacqueline no. vanick don't commit the cr- most popular what a dynamic now. individual she yeah. was like so like i put myself i put myself like you know when you put yourself in the pages yeah, in the yeah. back um I put myself on pages where, like, I ha- there was my hand was in a photo. <laughs> right. <laughs> It'd be like the football page, and I'd be like walking in the background, and I would like tag myself. No, there were people in my high school yearbook that were like sneaking into group photos yeah. to pretend they were in clubs. Yeah, and it yeah. was. I'm pretty sure I did it too. I was very rambunctious. I was just like snily like that. I love it, just in the ways that matter. No, right. no, seriously. So, I mean, people that's the thing if you become a killer or if you get killed yourself they're going to go to your yearbook and they're going to look at that stuff all right well that's enough of that so let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you Katie Beers' childhood was not a happy one. Having fallen into the clutches of a cast of selfish characters who stole her childhood. However, Katie wouldn't discover how hard life could really be until the eve of her 10th birthday, when fate dealt her another losing set of cards. Her disappearance and information about the people around her that was revealed during the investigation sent a sickening sense of shock through the suburban tree-lined streets of Suffolk County. The date was December 28, 1992. The setting? Spaceplex in Smithtown, New York. Spaceplex Family Entertainment Center is a special place for special events or individual family fun. From the minute you enter our building, you're transformed into a magical world of fun and excitement. Everyone's a child at Spaceplex. Our experienced staff and management team begin work long before you arrive to ensure the day's success. They know that many of the thousands of people who have been entertained at the state-of-the-art facility return again and again. 
There's so much to do, no one ever gets tired of coming to Spaceplex. Spaceplex is perfect for schools, camps, leagues, birthday parties, fundraisers, bar mitzvahs, and every organization looking for the ultimate in fun and excitement in a clean, safe, friendly environment. As you could gather from that killer commercial, Spaceplex was an indoor amusement park and arcade in Smithtown. At Spaceplex, there were actually bumper cars inside. There were rides. There were flashing lights everywhere. It was meant to sort of try to transport you into this wonderful world of gaming with video games and rides. Right up Billy's Alley. At 4.30 p.m. on December 28, 1992, Spaceplex employees were approached by a worried man named John Esposito. He was frantic because he had lost track of the child he had been entrusted with, a little girl named Katie. The employees jumped on board and helped John search for Katie, but she was still missing after an hour. They called her loudly over the intercom, but there was no sign of her in the dark indoor amusement park. After hours of searching, Mr. Esposito was in tears when he reported Katie's disappearance. It was Katie's 10th birthday, and he had explained how he had taken her to a Toys R Us to buy her a video game for a present, a Slurpee at 7-Eleven, and then to Spaceplex the afternoon. So a massive search went underway behind Spaceplex, the indoor amusement park in Smithtown, New York. There was 100 recruits from this police academy joined by 15 additional officers searching Route 25 near Spaceplex. So the police who aren't participating in the physical search for Katie, they start digging into Katie's life and her family and the supervision she was under on the day that she went missing. And the big question is, who is this John Esposito and how did he end up with Katie that day? Now, Esposito was a 43-year-old bachelor from Bayshore and a friend of Marilyn Beers, who was Katie's mother. And the Beers family met Esposito about 10 years prior when a daughter of one of their friends married Mr. Esposito's brother, Patrick. Then when Katie's brother, John, who was about eight or nine back then, he would actually spend time with Esposito and he would take him away for the day or for weekend outings. And Marilyn actually believed that Esposito was a good kind of father figure for her son. To the horror of Katie's family, only hours after hearing the news that Katie had disappeared from Spaceplex, a new message appeared on the answering machine. The call came in sometime after 5 p.m. on the very same day Katie had vanished. And the voice was believed to be that of Katie. And they actually weren't sure at the time if the message was actually left by Katie or if someone recorded her voice and then played it back into a phone receiver therefore leaving the message on her behalf in some other way. And the message essentially said that she had been abducted by a man with a knife. And the message ended with, oh my God, here he comes. And she sounded to be screaming and sobbing in this message. So, that, you know, you can't imagine what the family is thinking when, upon hearing this, but yeah, the police luckily were quickly able to locate the actual phone booth that was used. And they determined that it had been someone who had played a tape recorder into the phone. 
And um, I, I was I was going to say the reason that they figured out that it was like a taped message or a big reason was there was zero noise behind her voice. So it couldn't have been at a payphone when there was cars driving by and people around. It would have been like way more noisy. Mm-hmm. So it seemed way too focused to have been from where it was actually from. Got it. Got it. Interesting. So the police officer who made this determination ultimately said, you know, she was, in our opinion, coerced to make that recording. So as the police started to dig in, a media firestorm ensued. A description of the little girl was blasted across Long Island news media. Catherine Katie Beers was born on December 30th, 1982 at a Southside hospital in Bayshore, Long Island. She was blonde, 40 pounds, and was to celebrate her 10th birthday two days after her disappearance. And the day after Katie disappeared from Spaceplex, John showed a Christmas card during the news segment. It was a card that she had sent to him, and in a childlike handwriting below a printed verse on the card were the words, thanks for being like a big brother to me. So the investigation revealed that Katie had a, an unconventional home life. Her mother, Marilyn, was a single mother and a cab driver who struggled to make ends meet and had a hard time caring for Katie and for her older son, John, who was six years older. And Marilyn wasn't exactly sure who Katie's father was. Months after Katie was born, Marilyn picked up a woman in her cab named Linda Inkiller. And she and her husband, Sal, soon became part of Beer's sort of extended family. And by age four, it was reported that Katie would wander through the neighborhood barefoot. So it it starts getting really unconventional because you have this sort of, you you know, these kind of friends who are caretakers of her. And by first grade... She could actually be seen hanging out on the streets with no supervision on school days. So by age eight, Katie had actually moved in with her godmother and her husband, Sal, full time. And she had her own room with a lot of stuffed animals and a 101 Dalmatians comforter. But it was interesting. She would do things for the adults, like their laundry. And people would see her around town And they were concerned about her. I mean, it seemed that she was kind of living off of free food and coffee at the QT laundromat, which is where she was doing the laundry of her caretakers. And she would make the runs to the stationery store for potato chips, candy, and she was buying cigarettes for Linda and Sal, who are essentially her godparents. Again, at eight years old. Well, right. And I know also that um, I read the kids at school, you know, called her like cockroach kid. I mean, she looked unkempt. People were worried about her. She was walking around on the sidewalk barefoot. Her nails, I heard, were like black. Like, yeah, she was just not being cared for like yeah. a little girl. You don't know how to, you don't know, you don't know hygiene at eight. No. You're literally a, a child. Right. Um, so, like I said, the neighbors were becoming concerned and considered calling Child Protective Services. But her school actually did call and reported not only that she was absent all the time, but also that. They just were noticing glaring, glaring signs of neglect. But uh, nothing was ever done. And so even though Katie was under Linda and Sal's care, they entrusted Katie with John Esposito, too, because he was a family friend of Marilyn's and they had known each other a long time. You know, such was the case on the day Katie vanished from Spaceplex. And it looks like kind of the thing where it's like, we're not caring for her that much. Yeah, you want to take her and take her to do something fun? Sure. I mean, why would we stop you? 
Meanwhile, police were slowly piecing together a timeline for the day that Katie went missing. They found out that Katie had been last seen by someone other than John at the 7-Eleven in Bayshore four hours before she was reported missing by him. This is a sighting that they're able to corroborate when Katie was recorded on video camera in the store accompanied by John. But before the stop at 7-Eleven, he said he'd taken her to a Toys R Us and bought her a troll doll. So the detectives had questioned Mr. Esposito for more than 18 hours after he reported Katie missing, because although they initially gave him the benefit of the doubt, after a chaotic fury of the search for Katie, they started to learn some alarming things about his past. So to help us shed light on John Esposito, we have with us today our first degree, Christina Kamisiak, who lived three doors down from John. I lived literally three doors down from John Esposito. I knew of the family and that house because his brother owned um, a carpet store in town. And I actually purchased my first well, my parents purchased my first carpet for my first own bedroom um, from their carpet store. I remember, um, so the front house, I remember um, had these two columns down the front. There was brick on, you know, if you're facing it on the left side, there was brick and then um, a couple of steps up to the doorway and these two big white columns. And then he had um, these lion statues in the front of the house. And I always thought, like, they must be some wealthy family. You know, it was almost regal in a way. And and not knowing them and not ever really seeing them out and about or working on the yard or anything like that, that they seemed like they were these wealthy, untouchable people. But I always remember the lion statues in front of the house um, and thinking that the house was pretty cool. Um, I also was nine years old as um, Katie was, so um, we were pretty similar in age. In 1977, John Esposito had been arrested for abducting a 12-year-old boy at the Massapequa Mall. He had snatched the little boy while falsely claiming to be part of a big brother slash big sister kind of a program. He eventually pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of unlawful imprisonment involving the sexual abuse of the little boy who had forcibly taken from the mall. The case file was ultimately sealed to protect the identity of the 12-year-old victim. And after the police found out this information, he immediately became a suspect in Katie's disappearance. Yeah. Obviously. Oh my gosh, so scary. Well, it's so creepy, these kinds of predators. Well, and also I had read that John Esposito had, I think it was after this had all happened, he tried to actually join a Big Brother program just to be around little kids and was obviously denied. Right. You know, he was accused of trying to snatch a boy from the mall, which I'm sure was the mall that I wound up working at when I was 16 years old. Um... But that, you know, back then, you know, there's not the media to find information out about people and the Internet didn't exist. So I don't I don't even know if we knew that he was accused of trying to snatch a boy. Um, So like I was saying, we, you know, we walked down to the bus stop every day and we passed his house and, you know, were never really worried or concerned or had to to think about being careful around there because it was a you know maybe it could have happened to us this is a neighbor of ours 
you know, he lived literally three houses down the road. So we, you know, don't talk to strangers, but like, is your neighbor your stranger? And I don't know if it's being naive, like, but back then it just didn't seem as scary, you know, now that they have how to catch a predator and realizing how many pedophiles are out there. But it's almost like you're naive to the fact that it really could be anybody and somebody that, you know, is in your neighborhood. And we just had no idea. So given this information about John that was learned about this incident involving the 12 year old boy, the police understandably had their eyes on him in the beginning of the investigation. I believe before the news story broke about um, a missing child, um, we used to have to walk down a whole block and past the Esposito's house to get to my bus stop. So I lived on um, one corner of Saxon Avenue and our bus stop was on the next corner. And so we had to walk to and from school, my sister and, you know, our next door neighbor and across the street neighbor. And we noticed a car was sitting outside, literally across the street from my house. And there were two men sitting in the car for several days. And so we, you know, approached our parents and said something weird, like these guys have been hanging out. This car's been here for the last couple of days. And we actually got nervous. So my mom started walking us down the street. So these were undercover officers watching the home of John Esposito. So in addition to the red flags in his past, security cameras also disclosed that John had actually entered Spaceplex by himself. Katie had not been seen in the security footage entering with him. And I have to say, as a result of this negative publicity, Spaceplex really suffered. Oh my God. And the irony there is that it was a very safe place for kids. I mean, they had security guards at every door and they had surveillance video. And it's just like, you know, it sucked because Katie was never even there. And this that whole, does suck. And this whole thing was like, she was abducted from Spaceplex. And it's like, she was like, never don't there. Don't bring your kids to Spaceplex anymore. A really dangerous place to go. Exactly. But it wasn't long before police would soon learn that there was more than one predator that was in Katie's orbit. In this case, you know, they're thinking obviously it's John would not be as open as shut as they initially hoped it would be. So, you know, and begs more questions. If John was responsible, where was Katie? You know, like what could have happened between the stop for a Slurpee at 7-Eleven and their arrival at Spaceplex, which was not, you know, very long between the two. So. The aforementioned complications in terms of a suspect were revealed when family and friends told police about a long-running custody dispute between Katie's mother, Marilyn, and Sal and Linda. So remember, Linda is Katie's godmother and Sal is her, Linda's husband. So the custody fight included accusations by Marilyn that Sal had actually sexually abused Katie. And Sal was 39, and he'd actually been charged with this the previous October, charged with sexually abusing Katie after Mother Marilyn Beers filed a complaint with the Suffolk County Police Department's Sex Crimes Unit based on these accusations. But that case file was hampered due to unreturned calls from Katie's family members once the police did start to pursue action. So the accusation was made, like I said, by Katie's mom, but was denied, 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 denied by Sal. 
who claimed that the reason Marilyn was making these accusations was because of this bitter fight over custody of Katie. And basically, after these allegations were made by Marilyn, Katie actually moved back in with her mother, Marilyn, her grandmother, and her brother, John. But this was not like an idyllic homecoming because, you know, on January 3rd, 1993, police documents revealed that John was actually arrested for attacking his mother, Marilyn, and punching her several times after an argument. And then when the police did arrive, his mother was holding him down. So chaotic household. Yes. Chaotic to say the least. Yes. So the investigation at this point is completely entangled inside Katie's ties to these two troubling families and the two men close to Katie, the husband of her godmother and the family friend who is the last person to have seen her. They have both been accused of sexually abusing a child. Although it should be mentioned that John Esposito's role as the obvious number one suspect faded somewhat when they learned that Sal Angulari had been accused of sexually abusing Katie in October. So she's, she is in the, the worst situation possible. It's disgusting. And the, like, it's shameful yeah. that this many adults around you could be this toxic and that nobody does anything well and then what are the odds that you go from one to another happens quite a it bit. happens quite a bit really? it really does yeah jack was talking to me earlier when we were doing research about how it could happen that so many people could notice that something was wrong and not do anything yeah yeah. And what, I mean, we referenced actually this in a really sick way. We were talking about the final episode of Seinfeld, <laughs> where um, Elaine, Kramer, George, and Jerry see a guy being harassed on the road, and they kind of mock him, and they don't do anything because they assume somebody else will. Yeah. It's a little worse than that in that episode, but I think we can all understand this idea that, like, if you hear someone screaming outside... And a lot of people are like, oh, my God, did you hear that? You think someone else is going to well, do something. It's like something. the Kitty, Kitty Genovese case where, right. where you know, they, yeah. they said it was 38 people who heard it. it wasn't exactly 38, but, you know, no, you know, who would pick up the phone and who, or who would run down there when they heard somebody in this apartment complex screaming for help? Um, you know, the, the Seinfeld episode w- was... No, I was trying to show how shitty no, people they are. No, I know. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and, th- and then really, but, you know... It's considered a, a bad finale, but if you think of it this way, I loved it. I loved it too. If you think of it as that circle. they die in the plane crash, because mm-hmm. remember it was a plane crash. It, yeah. it was a plane was going down. If they die, and then that's actually them trying to they're getting into heaven. They're trying to get into heaven, and this is this is their purgatory. And then they have all of these people come forward and say how horrible they are. If you think of it that way, I actually like the episode. It's kind of like then that kind of makes it like lost. I didn't interpret it like that. I didn't either. They went to jail. Yeah. (laughs) But they'd be back in a year. But anyways, it's like the bystander syndrome where it's like you, if there is so many other people around, you're just going to assume that somebody else is going to take responsibility for something. Especially if the abuse is that obvious. Someone will do something. Somebody obviously was noticing that Katie was being neglected or abused. And there are so many obvious signs. So surely somebody else would say something a like family member someone yeah. yeah and you saw that the, because i was home from college at the time because uh, it was december 92 and 
you would see her, you know, her, her face was on the cover of Newsday, it was on the cover of the newspapers, and you see it, and she just, she had that sort of half smile of somebody that, I mean, you never want to say that, you never want to project or say that, oh, that, that person is scared or something like that, but they, you could just tell there was something just not right, and mm-hmm. then you would see the, the people that were surrounded by her, and you'd hear these interviews with this John Esposito character and this Sal guy, and it just, everything just felt wrong and about icky. what and, yeah, and just icky. icky and 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 troubling about the case and my dad i remember i mean this was this was it was everywhere and i just remember my dad just like watching this over and over again and you know as it was unfolding and as the police were were constantly doing tons of searches in all these different areas and all the news trucks and the media and everything started camping outside on our block and we were watching the news. I remember being in the living room. Um, I don't know, maybe I was doing homework or something, and my parents were watching the news. And we saw uh, the house three doors down up on the news. So we recognized it and learned of the story and how there was a child missing. And, um, they were, you know, he was the last person to have seen her. Days after that, our street was packed with onlookers, I guess, and just, I mean, car-to-car traffic. Um, we had to still get walked to school, to the bus stop, because um, there was so much traffic and so many people. It was almost scary. Um, I actually remember holding up signs one weekend that said, um, keep driving, because this, the street was just so packed. After that, they did wind up blocking off our street to traffic. So from the two, from my house on that corner till the next corner where our bus stop was, they had um, left off the street and you could only go in if you lived on that block and you had ID. Um, so back in 1993 and when we were kids, we didn't have any ID. So I actually remember one day um, my sister had something after school and had to take the late bus and she could not get back down our street. So instead they had wound up jumping through some neighbor's yard and I remember my parents being really upset. Um, it was just kind of crazy in that sense. So the media coverage and bizarre revelations about Katie's life drew in a barrage of tips from the public. The Suffolk County police were inundated with calls from people across the country who said that they had seen little Katie around town. The search brought to light a bulging case file from the county's Bureau of Child Protective Services about Katie and raised all these new questions, not only about Katie's life amid sickness, squalor, and alleged sexual abuse, but also about her treatment by school and county officials who were responsible for protecting her welfare. Why was nothing done when the school reported what they perceived to be abuse to the CPS? And did these negligent actions ultimately cost the life of this child? So... As far as the investigation and suspects were concerned at this point, interest shifted back to John. And it's weird when I think back to, it just was like that that craziness for a little while. And then after they, I remember after they like blocked off the street too, like at that point, it felt like nothing was happening because now we didn't have the chaos of the media and the cars coming through. And at that point it was just like a waiting game, like, you know, you know, we didn't know obviously what the police were doing and what they were suspecting or searching and that kind of stuff. But it just almost seemed like you know it was frozen in time during that period. Interest did shift back to John, 
once more when a disturbing and chilling admission was made by Katie's then 16-year-old brother, John. John confessed to his family that he had been sexually abused by John Esposito. And there's little John, obviously, and big John here. Uh, child John and adult, adult pedophile John. So, in fact, the police eventually confirmed that they had investigated a complaint made by Marilyn Beers a year prior that alleged that John Esposito had molested her son over a seven-year period in which he spent weekends at their home. So Katie's brother, John, said that Mr. Esposito sexually molested him, but he declined to give further details. And he said that I didn't really remember anything until last December. And he said that his memories of sexual abuse came back to him when he was being interviewed by police in connection with Katie's disappearance. And um, I did read that he seemed to be very like pulled in two directions because while he was saying that he was sexually abused, he was also saying that John Esposito was a friend and he didn't want anything like bad to happen to him. So he was kind of being like pulled in these two like it's very polarizing yeah, directions. But it happens when your your dad is a criminal or something. It's like yeah. you get so conf- torn. And he it, was such like a big brother, father type father of figure, figure to him. So it's like you don't want to look at somebody probably in that bad of a light even if they're doing terrible things no, and to they, you they've groomed you and you feel guilty yeah. like and that's what a lot of pedophiles do it's like i could get in trouble do you want that like if you ever tell we can't see each other anymore we'll get in trouble my yeah. life will get ruined yeah it's such manipulation it's bullshit so after katie's brother came forward with the abuse allegations against esposito they had enough to search esposito's home and Law enforcement go in to the house at 1416 Saxon Avenue, and they spend two hours there on December 31st. Obviously, it's New Year's Eve. It's actually the day after Katie's 10th birthday, and she's been missing now for four days. They dig through piles of leaves, and they say that they searched every drawer in every room. They tear the home apart. There's no sign of the little girl anywhere. And... Things are looking more and more grim, but the search did turn up a couple things. So the FBI, who was actually conducting the search, they took samples of two stains in the home. And they also discovered an instruction manual, and it was an instruction manual for a new tape recorder, which may have been irrelevant, but they recalled the message left by Katie after she vanished. And they start thinking, could the tape recorder have been related to that? And they didn't know, but it was something that was sticking in their head. And obviously none of this, you know, the stain and the tape recorder, nothing out there is a smoking gun. And none of these things obviously were Katie. So they're still drawing a blank and they're still conducting multiple searches everywhere looking for this little girl. Throughout the duration of the investigation into Katie's disappearance, John had steadfastly maintained his innocence, and the hope that Katie would be found alive, of course, is dwindling with every passing day. I mean, generally the rule is you get 48 hours, and with every day that passes, the likelihood of you being found, forget unharmed, alive, dwindles drastically. But the end of the mystery surrounding the ominous fate of Katie Beers began two weeks after Katie disappeared. When John Esposito walked into his lawyer's office and announced, I have something to tell you. 
I know where Katie is. His lawyer, Sidney Sybin, said he immediately called the authorities. And John Esposito went back to the house and the detectives were waiting. One officer said, we called her name at first and she didn't answer. So there was some concern as to whether or not she was still alive. But then, out of nowhere, she appeared, a little 40-pound doll. She looked a little frightened by all of us, but she was so happy to be out. Turns out that John Esposito had abducted Katie and held her captive in an underground bunker. She may have even heard them searching for her the first time they went to the house. Breaks my heart. So the only thing I remember from her rescue is that my grandfather, who lived next door to us, um, because she was taken out um, and freed in the middle of the day. So my parents were at work and we were at school. Um, But my grandfather was home and he said he remembered her leaving in the cop car. And she was actually happy and waving to people and smiling and stuff. So we kind of were like, she's okay and almost miracle, like just a miracle. She was found. Um, she was, you know, not physically injured or anything like that. Obviously, she went through a crazy traumatic experience, but um, that she was happy to be out and she was, you know, I'm sure very thankful. So it almost was like a happy story at the end of her being found. Katie was taken to the third police precinct in Hopog, where she was questioned by detectives and examined by a police physician. And um, there was no initial word on what she told police. And of course, that information would be very delicate. This is a newly turned 10-year-old little girl. So once Katie was in safety, the police examined the home and the bunker that Katie had been held in for 17 days. The entry to the hiding place appeared to have been made deliberately difficult to get to. There were shelves and a stereo system and a bar that all had to be removed by taking out the bolts. Then there was a carpet that had to be rolled back. And finally, there was a 200-pound slab of concrete covering a trap door that had to be moved aside. This then exposed a ladder leading to a tunnel that ended up at a locked door to Katie's little room that she was being held in. This room was six by seven feet, and it was soundproof. And no matter how loud Katie might have yelled for help, nobody could have heard her in his house. And inside the room, there's this closed circuit television installed in the bunker. She could hear and see what was going on outside in John's house. And he had installed a monitor in the room with a camera in the part of the main house. Here's somebody. He he was familiar to that family. You know, he took her to Spaceplex in uh, Smithtown on Long Island. And you think he's taking her there for her birthday as a great birthday present. And then all of a sudden she doesn't come home. I mean... He had this insane, this insane bunker. Like, I don't, you know, cops were in that home and they were in that room where you would get to the bunker and they still had no idea. So this was totally premeditated and planned. He built it, um, couldn't find her, and they found her alive. This is one of the craziest cases because the realization that Katie had been there during the first search with a closed circuit television watching oh, the people searching for her. And not only that, she's watching 
She's 10 years old. She's scared as hell. She's watching these news reports on the TV set. She knows the people are looking for her. She knows that they're searching for her in the woods and all these places. Then she actually sees them in the house. I'm sure she's screaming, but the bunker that this guy made was so hidden. The police said, I remember them saying they would never have found it. Never. If, if he didn't give it up. And, you know... There was also, um, even though it was incredibly soundproof, a bunch of heavy rain and snow had fallen in. So um, the the little cell that she had in she she was in was like all damp and frozen. It was just a miserable place. And I remember, so we didn't want to give this up earlier. But while my dad was watching TV every day, he would see this guy and he would say, "This guy knows." And he, I remember mm-hmm. my dad saying that this guy knows. Um, my parents actually told me a story when they first um, moved into the area. Um, they moved into our house in 1978, and they had, you know, introduced themselves to some neighbors, and they had gone to the Esposito house, and um, they said that, you know, his mom had answered the door, and they were polite, but almost, not standoffish, but they could get the vibe that they weren't interested in you know, being these friendly neighbors that will have barbecues and stuff together. Um, and as they learned, as they got a little bit um, more acquainted with the neighborhood, was that um, John was slightly slower, um, you know, probably learning some dis- learning disabilities or a little bit slower. And it seemed that the parents were very protective of him. And um, so we didn't see him out much, um, especially compared to he had a twin brother um, and then the brother that wound up opening the carpet store. So we're more familiar with them and not really familiar with John. Um, And then when the parents died is, I think, when we kind of, you know, John was kind of not kept as much as they were or looked over by the parents. And so he was kind of a little bit more free to to do what he was thinking of doing, I suppose you can say. My sister's um, current boyfriend went to high school with John, and he didn't hang out with him or anything. He wasn't super familiar with him. I think he said he remembered him a little bit as a loner and, and also a little bit on the floor side. So John Esposito is arrested, is arraigned. He's ordered held on $500,000 cash bond. So when John Esposito was arraigned, it included an 11-count indictment handed up by grand jury. And upon these charges being handed down, the judge basically doubled the $500,000 bail that he was initially um, given and upped it to $1.1 million, 100000 for each count. And I'm just going to read you a couple of these counts because I'm not going to bore you guys with all 11. They're all equally heinous and disgusting. Uh, The first count uh, alleged abducted and restrained the victim for a period of more than 12 hours with intent to violate or abuse her sexually. Second was kidnapping with intent to commit sexual abuse. Third, kidnapping with intent to terrorize. Fourth, four through six, um, his intention was to subject Katie to sexual contact by forcible compulsion touching her vaginal area and buttocks. So it goes on and on. This is about a, you know, 10-year-old girl. We don't need to read them all, but just so you get the picture. Um, And while he was standing before the judge, he had his head hung low in cuffs, 
And he stood silently throughout the entire time. And uh, he was returned to the county jail and he was not able to make bail. And that is where he stayed. And he was also ordered to be held separate from the other prisoners and kept under 24-hour suicide watch. So um, his lawyer entered a plea of not guilty on all counts. And it's worth mentioning that after Katie's rescue, police investigators with dogs started searching the grounds of Katie's subterranean prison at John Esposito's house for signs of other missing children. And basically the police said, you know, we're trying to find out if there were previous occupants because, I mean, you don't need to be a police officer to realize is that in 77, he was caught trying to snatch a 12-year-old boy. And if he hadn't been caught, Lord knows what he would have done. Mm -hmm. Then he was opportunistically molesting Katie's older brother for seven years. And now he's got Katie in a dungeon. I mean, I, it would baffle me if he hadn't done it before. Right. John Esposito in his house, he also had, it's pretty much like a children's Disneyland, I guess. There was a basketball court. There was a pool. He had a front porch. It was just like a great place for kids to play. And, you know, there were always children around his house. And a next door neighbor named Teresa Stone said that she often saw Mr. Esposito, who was never married, with always around children. And all these children swam with him in the pool, played basketball with him in the yard. And she just said that all the information was just very hard to believe. I do believe that a couple of the children from the house across the street from him um, did hang out because he had he lived in behind the main house in like a garage converted apartment um, with lots of video games and kind of kid type games. Um so I do know that uh, there were some boys from the neighborhood that hung out there, but um, my sisters and I were never um, approached or asked or ever hung out there. So how exactly was John Esposito able to pull this thing off? Now, remember, he's a general contractor. So he had the skills to transform the garage into this bungalow in stealth mode. Yeah, so he was a contractor, and then um, the house had a, a tall, like, privacy fence from the driveway. So you couldn't see much of what it was in the backyard, but my dad did say when they interviewed neighbors after she was found, and they kind of questioned, like, didn't you hear this bunker being built? And my dad had said, like, oh, we heard hammering, and we heard, you know, construction, but... You know, maybe they were working on a fence or maybe he was building a shed. Like, I mean, nobody was going to assume he was building a bunker to capture a child in. Like, that's not something you would report to police because somebody's building something in their backyard. There were never any signs of anything suspicious going on in the back of their house, even when he was building it. And, you know, the whole family really just kept to themselves. Um, I know his brother, his twin brother and his wife lived in the front house um, before. And I, I think they didn't even know what he was doing back there. And he would add a room here, add a room there, then add a second story. And then finally, about a year earlier, he would add this the yellow carport in the back of it. So this whole house was kind of like ramshackle, but it was it was well built in a sense. Um, but there were 
windows and doors and several levels and several entrances. And, you know, I'm sure it wasn't up to code. You know, no, this, yeah, not, yeah, no. But not. but this guy had the access to be able to build Space this Plex stuff. Space was up to code no, in 1993. <laughs> Spaceplex was not up to code. And by the way, I did some digging on Spaceplex. And I already told you. I side texted you because yeah, you we did. had both been there before. And I was like, "Do you know that A, they filed for bankruptcy in '96, and B, probably because nobody went after the Katie Beers no. thing. Yeah, well. They're also in the mob and." did organized crime mm. and uh, stock fraud. They filed for Chapter 11, and then Spaceplex turned into a roller hockey arena, and that was my home arena when I played professional roller hockey. There's no such thing as professional roller there hockey. There is. I got paid $500 a week. That doesn't I am sound a, professional. I am a professional athlete. Uh, I don't know if I that's was. how it works. I got the first uh, penalty in league history, in Major League Roller Hockey history, and I spent pretty much the rest of the season on the bench. Doesn't sound very professional. To me. Yeah, I still got no. paid. <laughs> Sounds like a lie. All right, let's get back to Esposito in this story. So, just because they have John Esposito in custody doesn't mean, obviously, that their investigation is over. They have a lot to try to piece together and figure out. So, the investigators were continuing to peel back these layers that these layers of secrecy. And by doing so, they're confronted with elements of a story that some likened to fictional accounts in the John Fowles novel, The Collector, and in the Thomas Harris bestseller and movie, The Silence of the Lambs. In fact, an agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation's National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crimes in Quantico joined police investigators in Bayshore in an effort to study parallels to standard pedophile cases. And you know, a fictional FBI behavioral science specialist tracks a serial killer in the silence of the lambs. And in The Collector, a recluse and a butterfly fancier imprisons a woman whose love he covets. And like the, you know, I said this about the Rifkin episode. These pop culture references are like filters to make these things more palatable. And it's like, yeah, it's the horrors Katie experienced in her childhood. You know, there should be no, there's no filter on it. I mean, it's, it's deplorable, you know, um, but that's what people were saying in the media back then. So more stuff comes to light when Paul Friedman of Big Brothers and Sisters of Suffolk County came forward with some really infuriating information. So he shared a story about Esposito and he said in 88, Esposito applied to become a Big Brother. He went to the orientation session, but he was told that he's going to have to undergo a, a police background check. And then he said that it was, it was going to turn up a conviction. So Esposito said, all right, well, you're going to do a background check on me, but you know what? I'm just going to let you know it's going to turn up this conviction, a 1978 abduction case. And to be clear, the abduction happened in 77. The, he pled to lesser charges in 78. And he said that, um, that it was actually carried out by his twin brother, and his twin brother was using his name. So he was like, it's not me, it's the twin brother. And remember, one of the big things in crime, it's never twins. <laughs> so uh, Friedman said, we became suspicious, rightfully so, and then rejected him. Then in 1990, a Bayshore resident called the Big Brothers organization 
and said that they had taken a flyer posted at a supermarket by Mr. Esposito. And, and here's what the flyer said. So Esposito actually went to a supermarket and posted, I'm a Long Island big brother. If you have a son who you think needs a man's influence, I may be able to volunteer my time. Everybody needs a man in his life. And he said he had been a bro- big brother for more than 10 years and had, quote, character references. And Friedman reported this to the police. Esposito actually advertised again in the Penny Saver. Bold. Bold. The Penny Saver. Uh, but like such a public, dis- your lie. It's one thing a flyer. You could be like, no, someone made that up. But like to put it in a newspaper. Yeah. But remember though, he's doing this in the late 80s, early 90s. What's, cash, what's not around though? Yeah. The internet's not around. Yeah. You can't really he would be things. all over the internet now. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a guy that would be, end up on To Catch a Predator. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's worse. Yeah. Uh, so then in December... He would have killed Katie. I really believe that. Eventually. Eventually, yeah. Because that's usually what happens. Uh, you, you, you can't keep... You either write... You, yeah, you... you Six uh, by seven room? Yeah. Or you, or you would have died from neglect anyway. Or potentially what he was waiting for was for, you know, be able to maybe escape with her. But... um. Yeah. I mean, what they did was they just sat out there. It was a waiting game. It was the, they, they, they just leaned on him so hard that he eventually broke. And they knew, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Uh, they had no idea that she was going to be in the house. They thought, I think, I think they thought she was dead. And yeah. he just, they just wanted to know where she was and where her body was. Right. So when we found out that she was alive, this was a, a big, it was, like, like you said, it was considered a miracle. It's so funny. People talked about it as it was growing up because. We keep saying that like it was in Smithtown. I went to Smithtown High School, so I'm from here. But I was seven in 92. I was eight in 93. This was so... I was her age, yeah. you know? Yeah. So this was not something I was privy to until I was older. This was not... Did they use this as a warning? Did your parents like... No. No? No. See, that's what... See, my dad would always do that. Like the John Pius case with the... Mm-hmm. Yeah. With the kid who... who um. What they thought was that he was going to narc on some kids for stealing a a, um, a bike, a bike uh, and uh, they killed him by shoving rocks down his throat. And my dad, I remember him telling me, you know, don't tell on on kids, don't 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 put yourself in that situation because of that. So every story well, that, that my dad is like that is like the the I mean, because that was at a high school, that was at a elementary school at my in my school district, mm-hmm. Dogwood Elementary is behind it is where it happened. And um, it was like our neighboring elementary school. And it's like, it's a story everybody knows. And it's like one of those town urban legends, you know, but it is, it is so much worse than that. Yeah. Yeah. That's that the truth of that story. I mean, is. Yeah. And then so, so we had that story. And then we also had the um, Ricky Casso stuff from Northport, which is also on the North Shore of Long Island, which was the satanic so quote unquote satanic murders. It turns mm-hmm. out it was an LSD thing gone bad. But um, you know, Long Island was a messed up place. Long Island still was is. what Long Island was what Florida is today. And Long Island is still messed up. But if, that's for another time. Yeah. Okay, that was a very cute Long Island nostalgic tangent. But like let's get back to this big brother thing. And because there's even more. Like everybody was sort of on him as far as this big brother facade. So there had actually been a time that Marilyn Beers had contacted Mr. Friedman with the brothers and sisters with concerns about John Esposito. 
in December of 91, Marilyn Beers contacted Friedman saying that Esposito had been involved with her son for about seven years and asking if he was a, actually a registered big brother. And Friedman said, I told her, no, he's not a, a big brother. And he said he then referred the case over to the sex crimes unit of Suffolk County Police, but he was told that there's not much that they could do. So let's get back to the hero in the story, Katie Beers. After her rescue, gifts were flowing in from across the country, including money, raggedy and dolls, stuffed bears, school supplies, clothes, and books. Remember, actually, in school, we did um, write, our whole class wrote letters to Katie Beers. I actually have no idea if she's ever received them, but our teacher um, had everybody write letters to her, just telling her that, you know, we were sorry for what happened to her and, and, and what you know, hope that she was doing well and we were thinking of her and that kind of stuff. And people were kind of wondering what she was going to do because she was essentially famous for having survived her whole ordeal. And people were offering her up to $250,000 for a story. Producers started coming out of the woodwork promising to make movies. And that's whether she was involved or not. And I can't even imagine being in her position after being so traumatized and then having people trying to either throw money at you or make money off of you. No, in the lawyer who represented Amy Fisher in the Joey, Mary Jo Betafuco case, his name's Eric, Eric Nyberg. Nyberg. Yeah. He was approaching Katie like, I'll, I'll, I'll look after her for free. Like I'll, uh, you know, liaison these deals. And it's like, this is a 10 year old child who has just been like, you know, she's not trying to get into the entertainment industry. No, she needs to heal, man. Just needs to heal. And this is this is actually a perfect opportunity. Jack and I were talking about this before. These psychics in this case. Jack, why don't you get into that a little bit? So there were I think that there were four different local psychics that offered up their services for free. One of them ended up working with Linda, who was Katie's godmother. And then they ended up finding this note that basically said that Linda was like Katie's favorite person in the world. So then yeah, sure. Yeah. Like very like Totes. really good Authentic good timing note. yeah um and then so marilyn ended up hiring her own psychic so it was like these psychics that were like against each other trying to find info and marilyn's psychic basically said while well, all of this was going down and there was no real info out other than like john esposito was, was a, suspect. a suspect he was like you know katie is for sure with john being held underground behind a red door that's what he said and then he and that she's alive and that she's alive and that the phone call was made from a phone booth that was like right behind Spaceplex. So then when all this information came out, he was pretty much like 90 percent right about all the information minus there was no red door. And then there was no or the um, location of the where she the phone he called was like a little bit different. Yeah. But so so when this happened, then once she was rescued. Uh, the psychic guy was like riding these coattails. He did like a People magazine mm-hmm. shoot in front of John Esposito's house because he was almost right. Yeah. He was he almost was, fully he was right. Probably like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Almost fully right. In his... He's like, I just went out on a limb. <laughs> but at the, time, this crazy but at the shit. time, people, she had. Okay, so to be clear, she'd been missing for almost two weeks. Yeah. So when that is the case, your expectations are really low as far as the news you're going to get about whether the, the child has survived. So it's like, it is yes, a long shot. Statistically, the, you, they're yeah, not yeah. alive. I, I mean, yeah. I don't believe in psychics at all. I, th- I think they really do prey on, on people that are in need. 
And psychics always come, it's usually missing person stories. So psychics will come out of the woodwork with missing person stories. I've worked on missing persons uh, cases when people have come like, oh, I'm going to work with the psychic. I'm like, please don't. It's not going to work. You know, Suffolk County had never really dealt with this before where they had to take a minor into custody and they were sort of uh, tasked with like protecting her from the media firestorm and from, you know, predators in a whole new respect, which are after her for money or for, you know, her life story or her life rights. And it's just something they weren't ever having to deal with. So the family court judge in this case actually assigned a property guardian to her. um, And they were going to be tasked with anything having to do with her money. And Katie was initially placed in a foster care home. And for three weeks after she was placed in the home, she was allowed visitation by her mother, Marilyn, to kind of like see how it would go. Yeah. Like, let's see if this woman helps her or hurts her. Because this is actually a good time to talk about this. Because Marilyn was fighting for Katie back. And like, she, she gave Katie up and was letting her live with this couple. But, you know, she did report, I think you're molesting my daughter about Sal, Linda's husband. She did report, I think John is being molested by this guy too. Yeah. Um, by, by John Esposito. She'd go to the big brothers and sisters. Hey, I think this guy is molesting my son. Like, she was at least... Listen, I think she's neglectful. I think she's probably not well, and I don't have any information to say whether she was or not. But I do think she loved them. But I think she's troubled. Yeah, and I think that it's very easy to say... You know, this mother just just put them out there as chum for these sharks. But where was she going to go? And she needed help. She's a single mother. She's she didn't a, you have know. the money. And yeah. it's like yeah. she at least was like, you know, reported when she had suspicions about Sal. Reported call like to call Big Brothers to be like, yeah. is this guy she pretending wasn't like a hundred percent negligent? She yeah. wasn't like, I don't give a f- damn. She was like, you know, but this is this is the thing about like impoverished women. They have so few resources to even like protect yeah. their families in that like, how do you stop your kids from getting into drugs and getting into crime if you don't, if you're working six jobs yeah, to, and, to like keep a roof over the head, but then you're not there to supervise. It's a real difficult situation. And this is, this is where they were constantly talking about her in all the follow-ups about this case, about Katie Beers. The phrase that was consistently used is, she fell through the cracks. Mm-hmm. She fell through the cracks of the system. Because the system, because when when you're in that situation, when you have a mother that is, you know, not doing well, and then you have these sharks that are coming in, like these family friends, quote unquote, that are, that are taking advantage of these kids, that is when the system, that is when the government, that is when, you know, the, the caretakers are supposed to come in and help. And she just fell through the cracks. We were talking about Katie being placed in foster care after being given a special property guardian, and she thrived in foster care. I mean, they not only imposed discipline into her life because she was kind of allowed to do whatever she wanted. She like walked around the streets barefoot, but she went to school consistently and she was regimented in that they had her do little healthy chores around the house to feel like part of the family and 
make her feel like she had purpose and things that kids need. And you don't even realize how important these things are when you're growing up. And more importantly than anything, though, they really shielded her from the horribly intense media interest in Katie. And remember, she's 10. Like you see what like tons of fame can do to a 16 year old or like this can be really damaging. And they completely did not indulge any of that, which is probably the best thing they could have done for her. And um, she grew up and she got older and she went to high school and she played volleyball at East Hampton High, participated in drama and went to college in Pennsylvania. And there she earned a degree and met a man who would become her husband. And, you know, it's. You know, with a little uh, stability, I mean, she probably never would have had that if she had stayed in her old situation. She actually said that this event saved her life. So Katie survived, grew up, and 20 years later, she wrote a book. She said in an interview that she spent time reflecting on her life and decided to call the memoir Buried Memories. She doesn't have a contact with her biological mother and brother, but maintains a close relationship with her foster parents and siblings in East Hampton. She wrote that she had been molested and raped by Sal, her godmother's husband, from the time that she was a toddler. She also wrote that Esposito had raped her in the dungeon, and she explained that she repressed her memory of the sexual assault for many years as a defense mechanism. So she was also talking about how... um, like she was trying all these different tactics with John when she was like trying to escape. And one of the things was she said that she would run super far away and she would never tell the police about him. And she would say that she just ran away to escape the abuse. And he kept telling her how he wanted to keep her and he wanted to have kids with her and they, he wanted to have this life with her. But she basically said to try to get out of it in an impersonal way that by the time I'm able to have kids, you won't be able to have kids anymore. So he wouldn't be mad at her Aww. yeah but so for a 10 year old survival mode man but but, but and, and she, she knew, was in an adult's world though she, she knew was. she knew how to survive she was walking around as if as a first grader yeah you know she knew how to survive she'd been preyed on before yes. right when you're not there are more ch- like sex offenders and child abusers out there than we realize and they're just waiting for a unchaperoned child barefoot to be walking down the street like I'm sure she's averted many a situation. Yeah. Given yeah. given what we've been told about her. Right. And and I'm not trying to make assumptions. It's just like I you know, a lot of a lot of abusers are opportunistic, as is what we saw with Esposito in the Massapequa Mall when he snatched a twelve year old. You know, like they are opportunistic. Mm-hmm. She was alone a lot. Right. Katie also wrote that during her time in the dungeon, she rarely slept. And Jack and I were talking about this because she was afraid not only that he would abuse her from when she was asleep, but she was afraid that he would take a picture of her where she looked like she was dead and then send it to the police and then they would stop looking for her. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, that's what you read too, right, Jack? Yeah. Well, I think that he told her that he wanted to take a picture of her looking like she was asleep. And she was like, absolutely not. So anytime that he would give her food that wasn't in its prepackaged package, she refused to eat it and just push it aside because she knew that it could be drugged or she could be tranquilized or whatever or poisoned. Right. And so this, I have to say, as I was researching, I literally, I was up really late. I was really tired, but I started crying. So um, 
she also wrote about celebrating her 10th birthday as a prisoner. And she was actually heard on audio tape after the police seized the scene and found, you know, a tape recorder in the dungeon. And she had actually been singing happy birthday to herself into the tape recorder. It was horrible. And this is when she was turning 10 years old and like the loneliness and fear. It's like the comfort you can give yourself must have just been like, ah, it really, that really messed with me. Yeah. Um, but today she says she has no recollection of that, but that was what was on the recorder. So, because I mean, that's just, you're in a place of such sadness. Of course you don't remember that because your brain is protecting you. Right. Um, so while she was captive, you know, this monster fed her junk food, soda. And to this day, she's repulsed by chocolate after dinner mints because they were a staple in captivity in Esposito's home. And she did have access to a small TV, as we've said multiple times, and there was closed circuit cameras. But she says she can no longer listen to Whitney Houston's version of I Will Always Love You because it played incessantly on MTV and VH1 on a loop while she was in the dungeon. And that broke my heart, too. Because that is a song I love. Like, that is, like, one of the most, like, impactful, touching, like, reverberating songs, like, if you're in love, Mm -hmm. ever. Yeah. Um, And that, you know, I'm sure she's got just a visceral, horrible reaction to it, as she should. No, that's that's a trigger. That's what it is. So as far as the fate of Katie's abusers, Esposito pleaded guilty to kidnapping charges in exchange for 15 years to a life sentence. And Sal didn't get off scot-free either. He ended up serving 12 years in prison for molesting Katie. Then he gets out in 2006, but then he moves from his home at a Bayshore motel without notifying authorities. And because of Megan's law, the police track him down in North Carolina and he's arrested again. And then he dies in jail after he violates his parole. What's interesting about that is I was reading more, um, but he was just like, I'm scared to be in Suffolk. Like, he got so much media attention. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's like, don't molest children. (laughs) Yeah. But that's what what happens. Like, they're targets and they flee. And it's like, but that's that's what you get. Sorry, don't do it. Yeah, I should get fucking more than that. Dick bag. Shittiot. What shittiot? Who shitty, uses that? Like shitty, shitty idiot. idiot. Who uses that? Is Me? That... Really? Do you shitty idiot? Really? Shitty idiot? Yeah. All right. It's your right. new word. All right. Great. Don't call me a shitty idiot. That's showbiz, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Working it in where I can. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to make that our new tagline, but we don't, we never really know where to throw no. it in. So we asked Christina, I mean, it's been many years since this incident occurred down the street, doors away from her home. And we asked her if this has changed anything for her moving forward and how it's kind of affected her to this day. I mean, I don't know if there's any other word besides a monster for somebody that could plan to do this to a child, you know, even if he had some, you know, mental and learning disabilities and made some bad decisions. Like there's there's really no excuse for what he did. He took, you know, uh, she was under this, underground for 17 days with no bathroom and just just unlivable conditions and 
you know, whether he thought he was saving her from her life or not, like, that's not the way you do it. As I've gotten older, um, when I think about the situation, I don't know if it consciously ever changed the way I talk to strangers or approach people or neighbors. Definitely while my nephew comes over, um, we're constantly, you know, we check in a lot more where when we were younger, we got to, we rode our bikes after school and we played and we just came back before dark, right? Our parents knew we were in the neighborhood and we came back before dark. Um, now I think we check on my nephew every 15 or 20 minutes to make sure that we know where they are and who they're playing with and, and that kind of thing. So I do think it has affected, um, you know, my suspicion of people a bit more than it would have if we hadn't experienced this. So in September of 2013, John Esposito was found dead, unresponsive, at prison in New York. And at the time of his death, nothing appeared to be that suspicious. And he was found hours after he appeared in front of the prison parole board at the Sing Sing prison, and he was denied. All right. So what is Katie Beer's doing now and we know she thrived in high school and as soon as she had I think some stability and structure in her life she was doing probably pretty fabulously but we do know that she earned a degree in business she has a job in insurance a husband who loves her two children and she lives in rural Pennsylvania and today it's been 26 years since her abduction and subsequent rescue Wow. And I think she's a hero. Absolutely. Oh, my God. Yeah. She's been through the ringer and she has really prevailed. So what did we learn today? I mean, I think Katie Beers is the ultimate survivor. Absolutely. You know, they were leaning on this guy so hard. This guy had other victims. I'm sure he had other victims. I mean, he did. Undoubtedly. Yeah. Yeah. Her brother. The kids in the neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, other than those two, like, you just know, I mean, it's hard to come forward now. I mean, 90s, like, the chances are even slimmer. 80s, 70s, when he started, like... Well, and people, people looked the other way, I feel like, a lot more back in the day, too, where it was, like, all these different things that he was doing to try to get himself around kids, too. Like, we're he- hearing about the failed wholesome. attempts. It was a lot more wholesome. Abducted in plain sight is a is a great example of that, where it's, like, Things were just a lot. You just you hadn't heard via the like media circuses or the Internet that there's pedophiles like people were still living in this like time of innocence. Well, and also it wasn't as weird as a single middle aged man to be hanging around kids that he wasn't related to. Like, I feel like that kind of stuff doesn't fly as much these days. It's fucking weird. Now, we had that. Yeah, there was there was a couple of of coaches in. Uh, junior high that would take four kids from junior high on a on like a cross-country trip and it always was weird yeah and we're just like what the hell is going on here yeah and my dad was like my dad was like yeah there's no freaking way you're ever going on that no 
On that note, thank you to Christina, our first degree guest. And if you guys are one degree away from a murder or other stranger than fiction crime, please write us hello at the first degree podcast.com or on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Manic. Please join our first degree Facebook group. Just search at the first degree on Facebook. It's a closed group. We're talking all things true crime. It's been popping off. And last but not least, go get yourself some first degree merch. We have lots of goodies. Yeah. I ordered Sorry. about $100 worth of merch. Did you? Yeah. What? Wait, Billy. Don't, if, you're li- if you're lying, we can look it up. <laughs> look I know. it up. Did you really? Yeah. You're cute. That's yeah. so sweet. I like you. Thanks mm-hmm. for supporting yourself. <laughs> you know you're just going to get the money back. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, I was just looking at her Instagram too. Um, Lindsay and Nina's just posted the cutest picture of, an at- of her in the Talk Murder to Me shirt. She looks so cute. She's What's such her a little doll. Lindsay, N-E-I-N-A-S. She is Lindsay, so sweet. you are so adorable. We love you. We're also going to repost it. I'm going to repost this right now. Um, yeah, anybody that is, you know, getting their merch in, take some pics, send it to us, and we will repost. Yes. And um, until next week. Keep your friends close, but not, but not that, that close. close. <laughs>